Yorana Tato, you're listening to Native Stories. Native Stories exists to share the voices of those connected to the land. Native Stories' vision is creating a resource for Pilina, connection to place. Native Stories aims to activate Indigenous perspectives. Ovehia wile to ioa no waiau oahu maiau no hoao i afreitu morea. My name is Vehia Wheeler. I am from Waiau, Oahu, and I am now residing in Aparaitu Morea Te Aumohi. My guest today is Hetereki Huke, who I've come to know from a visit to Rapa Nui a few years ago. We had a mutual friend in common, and when I visited Rapa Nui, he was nice enough to show me around. We kept in contact through the years and have collaborated on a project together. We both studied urban planning for our islands, so we ended up having a lot in common. Hete is a Rapa Nui, is from Rapa Nui, an urban planner and an architect. He is the, the director of a climate change program, a local climate change program for Rapa Nui, the presidential advisor on indigenous issues in Chile. Rapa Nui is a territory of Chile and also the founder of a territorial planning office called Queho Studio. Hello, Hete. Yorana Koebehia, Yorana Korua Kite. No tatoa, no mao hitatoa. My name is Hedeki Huke. I'm, I'm speaking from Rapa Nui, Easter Island, which is a corner of the, of the Polynesian Triangle. So, hello to everybody, especially from, to those uh, hearing us from other islands in the Pacific. Yeah, thanks for coming on the show today. So exactly, it'll be it'll be people from Hawaii listening. Hopefully, people from Tahiti, and um, they get to hear all about your story, which is very interesting. Do you want to start with what your background is? If you grew up in Rapa Nui, what is your connection to the land and the okay the place where well, you live? What is my background? Um, I am Rapa Nui. I born here and and grew up here in Rapa Nui. Uh, I born in 1981. My father, he was Rapa Nui, and I grew up with his family. My mother was uh, from Chile, uh, from a Spanish family. So I'm half Chilean Spanish, half Rapa Nui. But I grew up here. Uh, with my grandparents, with my Rapanui grandparents and my and my my own parents, uh, I stayed in Rapanui until I was fourteen, and then I moved to Santiago in Chile to do high school and then the university. At that time, we had only one one school, so if you wanted to go, and it wasn't very good, so if you wanted to go to to the university, you had to move. Uh, early when you were a teenager so in my generation there was a lot of people studying in Santiago uh, at that at that age um, then I studied architecture they, I, then I had a specialization on territorial planning and that is what I do now uh, I have worked in several different things related always with Rapa Nui I wanted to share with you uh, the story of Hangaroa. I am from Rapa Nui, uh, Easter Island, which is a very, very small island in the corner of the Pacific Triangle. Okay, 
Rapa Nui was populated in, we, we're not sure when, but we believe that it was between the 400 and 800 after Christ. And it was discovered by the Europeans in 1722. Since then, uh, the population, since the first contact with Europeans, the population uh, start to Uh, to face different kind of problems with the uh, with the <clears throat> Europeans, a uh, new diseases arrived, uh, slavers arrived, and the population started to decrease. In the 1800s, uh, we were only I don't know 111 persons on the island, so all the current population. Uh, uh, comes from those 111. But at that time, the Rapa Nui people used to live around the island, divide in clans. We were about 12 clans, dividing two big groups. And each clan used to have this territory going from the coast to the hills. And in that territory that we call Mata, There was always a big uh, village in the coast and several small settlements around. This big village used to be the political center of the clan and also the religious center of the clan. It's where we can find the ahus, big platforms with moais in the tops, in the in the top. Those were funerary structures made for the kings. Well, thing is that people used to live around the island in these villages with different uh, ceremonial and political centers. But in the in 1800s, uh, Europeans, uh, in particular uh, some European businessmen, uh, start to, to use the island to have ships and produce wool to be sent to, <clears throat> to England. So very slowly they start to buy the Rabanui land and start to move the people to Hangaroa, which is the uh, the village where we where most of us live now. At that moment, the um, Catholic mission was established in Hangaroa. So the Rabanui people that moved from the rest of the island they start to settle around this mission. And in certain point, this area became a ghetto. It was completely closed, completely closed. Uh, the island became, uh, became part of the Chilean territory in 1888. And in that moment, in that moment Chile um, officialized uh, the, the, the use of the island as a as a ranch, we could say. And they make a and they made a contract with an English company named Williamson Valfour. This company still exists. They don't produce wool anymore, I think. Uh, and they left the island in 1953. But at that moment, the island was completely rented. So the use of the island was in first time before 1888 imposed, but then it was uh, 
something official for the country. Uh, so at that moment, Rapanui people lived, as I was telling you, closed in Hangaroa. Uh, there were fences, there were barbed wire around the island, and people couldn't leave, uh, couldn't leave Hangaroa. In fact, some places with fresh water or some places to fish were outside, but it was very difficult and they had to have special permits to leave the island. Thing is that that situation lasts until 1953 when the, when the company left the, uh, left the island and the Rapanui people uh, became, we became uh, Chilean citizens in the 60s. So before that, we didn't even have rights. Uh, I don't know how to consider that. I don't know if it's a slavery or something very similar, but clearly the history of Hangaroa and the colonization of the island is very related with the history of the Rapanui people rights. Right now, uh, we must live in Hangaroa because our great-great-grandparents, they established here, they divide the land, uh, and it became big family lands. So right now we live, and our family lives uh, where our great-grandparents established. And now there's a big uh, political demand to recover the rest of the island. Uh, and it's a beautiful process also because uh, we have to think on how we would like to uh, use the rest of the island. Uh, some of the island is parks, some of the island is uh, public property. Uh, but the history, as I was telling, the history of the use of the land on the island is related with the rights of the Rapanui people. So in this moment, we are trying to recover fully our rights and recover fully our land. That's the history that I can share. Oh, thank you. That's super interesting. Bejia, I actually I heard. Think was, I think that I, that I had a lot of mistakes telling this history. Okay, in the sense that oh. because mm -hmm. of my English. So, <laughs> Oh, no, I understood you perfectly. Really? Yeah, 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 yeah. <clears throat> you know, I actually read somewhere that the, the company that signed over the, the um, Chilean, the, that signed over Rapa Nui to Chile was connected to a Tahitian family called Brander. Yeah, 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 in fact. Yeah, they were French uh, living in Tahiti. In fact, in the very beginning, then they sell the company to a British company. Oh, but before then, they were based in Tahiti. And I read that they had taken Rapa Nui people to Tahiti to work in their yeah the mission on their plantations. The yeah, mission. But the oh. Yeah, the Catholic mission took because there was this fight uh, between the um, the businessmen, the company, and the mission. The mission at that moment was trying to protect the Rapanui people, and they took a lot of Rapanui to Tahiti in certain way to escape the slavery. 
and they start to work in Mangareva, in Morea also. And in fact, right, uh, there's a lot of people living in Pamatay. There's a lot of Rapanui people living in Pamatay. And that is because Pamatay, a big part of Pamatay, was part of the Catholic mission in Tahiti. And when the Catholic mission in Tahiti abandoned Tahiti, uh, they left this land to the Rapanui families living with them. And that's the, that's the, the reason why we have like a small colony of Rapanui people in Tahiti. Oh, so these are people that have stayed in Tahiti since the 1800s. Yeah, and their family. Wow. Okay. The, the uh, planning, uh, territorial planning studio with a friend of mine, Tiare, she's a lawyer from Rapanui too. And we have done a lot of uh, research on heritage planning on archaeological sites and visitation planning on touristic sites. So really my passion is heritage. I've done a lot of research on ancient houses, ancient settlements, how the people used to live, how the people used to build. And right now, well, I'm working on public policies again. I'm presidential advisor on indigenous issues. That is a... It's basically be part of a council, of a national council that works on indigenous policies and budget for the indigenous policies. Uh, I'm also directing the climate change plan for Rapanui. That's something that we're starting now. Well, that we have been designing from uh, 2016, but we are about to start now and we're really excited about it. Because as you know, climate change will impact the islands deeply. So we all have to be very worried about it. That's my background. <laughs> <laughs> In, yeah, thank you. Um, <laughs> it's really interesting, actually, because in Hawaii, I, I'm from Hawaii and I grew up in Hawaii, we don't know anything about Rapa Nui. I don't even know if I knew it existed until I was in university, to be honest. Yeah, we're, and then, really, we're really far away. We have direct flights to Santiago and to Papete only. I think that our right. heritage is it's known more than the island itself, like the big moais, the biggest statues. Yeah, and like actually hearing from the people and hearing from their stories is definitely not something that's in mainstream media or even, yeah, something that we hear around the, the Pacific yeah, Rim. We don't know much about our, uh, our neighbors. I mean, Rapanui is very known in Europe because its heritage is... It's uh, mm. yeah. the national park. It's uh, human heritage declared by the UNESCO. Uh, thing is that I believe I have this idea that Polynesia and the Pacific is such a vast territory with plenty of small islands that we don't have I don't know, the experience to know it all. And we are very ignorant about what the Pacific is and the reality of other islands, especially the, the, the smaller ones. 
anything that is very useful for all of us to know that because we share uh, not only a legacy, but we also share same conditions. We face same uh, same issues. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And like when you're already explaining the fact that you studied urban planning, I have quite a, I also studied urban planning. I'm yeah. and I'm quite a bit of we have Hawaiian friend. Yeah, and I have quite a bit of Hawaiian friends who've studied urban planning. So it's only, it only helps, right, to be in conversation and exchange these ideas, learn more about each other. That's pretty cool. Yes, there's so much in common. There's so much in common. Um, I have learned a lot from Hawaii, from the conversations I had with you, the visits to the University of Hawaii. It's very interesting the way that Hawaiians used to use their territory because in certain ways, very similar to us. And most probably it's very similar to most of the islands in Polynesia. But also, I think that there's, a, I don't know, like a new interest in on ancient planning and ancient techniques that can be translated in, in contemporary public policies. I might be wrong, but it's, it's what it felt in Hawaii. Yes, exactly. I exactly feel the same thing as in the terms of indigenous architecture is kind of um, coming more popular. The, the development of the ideas of indigenous architecture, indigenous design, and like bringing those things forward in our places because it's the most appropriate for our islands and for our cultures and for our future. Yeah. And especially when it comes to the use of the territory, I think that indigenous approaches have a, an ecosystemic uh, mm -hmm. pattern that right now makes a lot of sense. I mean, that not only market, the market defines the pattern of settlements, but also they can and they must be defined by geographical conditions, topography, a relationship with natural resources, with the wind, with the water, with the sea. That is very interesting. Also, the idea of, especially for small islands, that the territory is more than, than land. It's also water, it's also ocean. Our territory, uh, our natural territory is, is very different from the way that uh, that Western world consider uh, or think about their territory. Yes, exactly. Actually, on that subject, do you want to give us a little bit of information about the geographic um, outlay of Rapa Nui? <laughs> because well, I, when I went there and I was like, what do you mean there's no rivers? Wait, what do you mean there's yeah, no rivers? I was just like, how... So, like, how, yeah, so can you let, uh, yeah, people know? Yeah, most of them, they have bigger ones. Well, Rapanui is a very, very small island. Um, it has a triangular shape. The longest distance from one corner to the other, it's 24 kilometers. So it's really, really small. And it's a volcanic island. We have three main volcanoes, one in each corner of the island. But then we have 
several smaller volcanic formations. So the island is mostly rock. Uh, before being uh, inhabited, the island used to have a completely different vegetation. There's a lot of uh, scientific information that shows us that the island was full of palms and other vegetal species, most of them uh, endemic. Thing is that with human uh, settlements, with human activity, but also most probably due to uh, previous uh, changes in the weather patterns, the island start to lose its vegetation and it start to lose many, many species. So we face a deforestation in the 1600s, 1700s, a very deep and expanded deforestation that brought with it uh, the... Um, the loss of, of some natural resources, uh, like water, for example. And people start to face a very big uh, challenges related with the access of those natural resources. And the island is very known, uh, is widely known for that. Well, thing is that the island is a very small triangular island that belongs to the Chilean territory but culturally is Polynesian. Uh, it's very different in terms of landscape with other islands because we are not that tropical. Uh, it's not full of palms. It's not full of vegetation. It's really rocky. It's a very rocky island. Uh, windy, we have cold winters, uh, or at least colder than uh, Tahiti or uh, French Polynesia. Well, as you probably know, the three last islands that were populated, uh, they supposed to be New Zealand, Rapa Nui, and Hawaii. So we share a lot. We are Polynesians. We have a Polynesian, a Polynesian language, uh, very similar to the Maori and to the Hawaiian too, and, and, and the Tahitian, of course. Uh, we have the same cultural background, but a very different geology, topography, and territorial context. That's an right. overview of what Rapanui is. Ah, okay, yeah. So how um, how does the water work? Like well. No we don't have rivers, as, as you said before. We have small lakes inside of uh, craters. As I was telling you, this is a volcanic island, and we have a few big craters where we can find fresh water there. But the water that we consume today, it comes from underground water. We have very big water plates, um, that give us fresh water for the for the current population. In ancient times, uh, people used to find water in different ways. They, they used to accumulate rainwater, but they also take some some water from the water plates in a specific springs, especially in the coast. Uh, ah. 
You know that there are many volcanic islands in the Pacific that depends on water plates. And basically, when you have underground water, uh, the water plate fills with rainwater, okay? So what, what is happening in the surface is very important. Right now, even if we don't have a lack of water, we do see a risk on the amount and quality of that water due to the climate change. Let me explain a little bit more about that. When the, when the rain pattern change, the way that the water infiltrates to the water plate, it changed also. Uh, with the climate change for many places, among them Rapanui, we will see a change in the pattern, in the raining pattern. It means that probably we will face more uh, dry summer, summers and rainier winters, okay? So when you have a lot of rain concentrated in a very short time, instead of infiltrated, the risk is that all that rain moves uh, to the coast, to, 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 to the sea, eroding the surface. With the increasing erosion of the, of the land surface, uh, you don't promote infiltration. So that can affect the water plate, among other things. So going back again to the water resources, we depend on underground water. So far, we have a lot of it, but in the climate change, we see a risk, and a risk that we must control and project from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And I think that what you're talking about is something that the whole world, of course, is going to be affected by, but also very much so Pacific Islands who are <clears throat> not the ones putting out carbon emissions, not really the ones participating in climate change, but being being one of the first affected. And yeah, we can absolutely. see actually that we can see already that people have moved, that they've had um, sea level rise take away certain atolls and sea level rise will affect different water sources as well. And without a water source, how can you live on an island, right? Yeah, well, the effects that we could see from the, um, that we're seeing and that maybe we will see from climate change are diverse. You can see in Kiribati and the sea level rise, uh, it's serious. I mean, people, it's leaving Kiribati for that. Uh, we can only see, we can also see the coral bleaching, which is happening in Morea also, uh, and in most of the islands that have a coral reef. Uh, we can see the impact on freshwater resources. Uh, also, the rise of the coastal storms that could affect uh, plantations. In many small islands, we, we have seen how the taro plantations, especially, has been affected by 
the rise of the of the sea level and the coastal uh, storms, among many many other many other things. So I think that we have we are uh, we are victims of climate change already. That situation will only increase. So we have to be really prepared, and we have to see what is happening uh, on the other islands because. Uh, because as I was telling you, island territories are so small in general, even big islands. But we are extremely fragile. We are extremely sensitive. Our ecosystems are sensitive. Uh, we have many endemic species that maybe won't survive uh, these climate changes. So we have to be very careful in watching what is happening on the other islands and evaluating what is happening in our islands in order to promote a, a new development, new directions. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And so <clears throat> we've already kind of seen, I mean, we've seen a, a lot of changes already with COVID, which is not, maybe mm -hmm. some people will say it's uh, related to climate change, but um, I read from, uh, the Pacific Secretary of the something, something, Dame Meg Taylor. She said, even though that we have COVID right now in the Pacific, the biggest threat is still climate change to the Pacific. So we still have to be prepared. Yeah, yeah I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, COVID is something new that we're all facing, facing now the world. I mean, not only the islands and in certain way, in the islands, we have been protected because it's simpler to close an island. It's simpler to to build walls around it. We have a natural wall, which is the ocean. Well, in some cases, like this, is a wall. In some others, it's a path. Uh, I think that COVID won't be that serious for us like climate change. The effects of it can be deep, uh, can be deep in their society, deep in the land, deep in the way that we use our territory. They could even have cultural relevance because there are, are many practices, many cultural practices that will change for sure. Yeah, exactly. And example, can let, you... Let me give you an example. Sorry, let me give you an example. Uh, here in Rapanui, we celebrate a beautiful fest, uh, festival. Its name is Tapati, Tapati Rapanui. Tapati Rapanui. We celebrate it in February every year. Uh, in the Tapati, there are several competitions, traditional competitions, ancient sports, um, I don't know, from the small things, from planting to sports to, I don't know, swimming and so on. And there was this beautiful competition that took place in the Rano Adaku volcano. Uh, Rano Adaku volcano was the quarry of the big moais, the big statues. Okay, So when you go to Rano Adaku, you will see in the, in the slopes all the statues there still in the rock. Uh, but inside of the crater, uh, there's a small lake, and it's a beautiful place. And there was a competition of the tapati that 
uh, was made on that lake. Uh, men had to run around the lake and from the other side, take a small canoe, uh, go back to the beginning, run again, then swim. And it was beautiful. The uh, thing is that that small lake is almost dry now. It's impossible to have that competition. And we are not sure if it will feel again in the future. So that's a very important part of our culture, a culture that probably we won't do again. We're not sure of it. And uh, phenomenon of that kind, uh, we will, will be seeing it more and more often, for sure. And they will, they will be slow. Yeah. Oh. So you guys were able to do this uh, sport this year? No, no, no. We haven't used that uh, that lake for I don't know a few years so far. <gasps> and we're still hoping uh, for the lake to be filled with rainwater, but it doesn't change. It rises a little bit the level, then it goes down again. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so sad. So it's, yeah, exactly. Climate change, it comes with a lot of, you know, grief that people have to go through, a lot of, you know, personal changes, cultural changes. Yes. It's not just geographic changes, but also like within yeah. the, the culture and who you are, especially, identity, right? Yeah, especially because our culture and our identities are really attacked attached to the natural resources. When, mm-hmm. So when natural resources change, of course our culture, it will change a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, so, well, it's good the work that you're doing, putting work into a climate change plan for the future. And do you find that, um, that the young people in Rapa Nui are talking about this? Or, especially as COVID has come, like, are they talking about issues that could be in their future? And are they going, like, pushed into certain careers such as yours, such as urban planning? Well, good thing in Rapanui is that uh, younger generations, they are really aware about environmental issues, about ecology, about climate change. And I really think that we'll see a... very positive changes uh, through the next generations. People is really aware. And in fact, they are very active on it. I see it on my nephews. Uh, they are really active. They work on recycling. They work on, on climate change. They work uh, uh, protecting the heritage also. Oh, that's beautiful. That's great. And so, um, so you feel hopeful for uh, Rapa Nui? Yeah, absolutely. Of- you know, a good thing about our island, and I think that it's common in, in, in Polynesia, that we adapt easily. Okay, Polynesians, we I think I believe that we have that ability to to adapt fast 
to see when things are changing and you have to take new paths. Uh, and we're doing it here in Rapanui. I, I think there, with COVID, with climate change, there are problems, of course. There are new problems, but we are very fast responding to them. So, yeah, I'm hopeful. Yeah. Good, good. And how do you see the, um, as Rapa Nui is a territory of Chile, how do you see Chile um, either helping you guys into this climate change new, you know, new moving forward? Is the relationship with Chile strong or? Well, it's strong. It's not always good. Yeah. Mm. Let me explain about it. When, when you ask about how is the relationship or how supportive Chile is with climate change, well, they have been supportive. They are starting this process just like us. So we work the local plan in, in along with a national plan for the entire country. But the history of the, the relationship with Rapa Nui and Chile is older than that. I mean, it's a long history. Uh, Rapanui became part of the Chilean territory in 1888. At that moment, the entire island um, was became Chilean, not, not only, I mean, property of the country. So the Rapanui people lose uh, their property on the land. And right now, most of the island is either national park, and that belongs to uh, to the country, or a government's land. So there's a old fight of the Rapanui people to recover uh, their land, our land. So yeah, it's a complex relationship, and I think that it's happened in all of the small colonized islands. Also colonization uh, now in 2020, it's seen, it's seen as, as a, how to explain this? I mean, sorry. Now in 2020, we are realizing all of the effects of colonization. So I think that most of the islands were very aware that we lost a lot culturally. I mean, not only not only in terms of property, but culturally that we have lost a lot, and we have to reconnect, regain, conserve, and protect what we have, what we have. So of course, the relationship is not always easy. Right. Right. Um... And when you're talking about this, yes, that's the the connection to land for indigenous people is very strong and part of a strong uh, technique of colonialism is that land has been taken away from us. So this, this is also the same case in Rapa Nui for you guys. Uh, so can you repeat the question? The um, I'm asking uh, if you can clarify how land works in Rapa Nui, that it's okay. with Chile now and not as much with Rapa Nui people. 
if that's right. Yeah, yeah of course. Well, look. in Chile, I, I will start talking about what how it works in Chile, then to understand how it works in Rapanui. In Chile, we have a special law for indigenous people. It's the indigenous law. Uh, this law creates certain restriction to buy and sell uh, indigenous land. First, first of all, it declares indigenous land. Okay, so in Chile we have this special um, kind of property which is indigenous land. Indigenous land can only be sell to indigenous people. Uh, in Chile there are uh, several indigenous people. Okay, Rapanui is one of them. Uh, then it creates some special uh, legal uh, uh, some special legal instrument for the Rapanui people, okay, in particular. Well, because we are different from the rest. Well, all the people we are, we, we are different, but Rapanui, the entire community of Rapanui, we live in a single island that makes everything uh, unique, I could say, in terms of administration. Well, uh, that law, the indigenous law, also creates a national council, which I'm part, when I say that I'm a, a presidential advisor, is because I am designated by the president to be part of this national council. And this national council, uh, it tries to promote policies but also but also we work on the property of the indigenous land in most of the cases the indigenous people uh, has been the lands of the indigenous people in the history of the country has been taken away uh, so right now the country is it's trying at least part of it to uh, give back the land so we have like a national budget to buy land to non-indigenous people in indigenous areas and give it and give it back to indigenous people. Okay. Here in the case of Rapanui, uh, here in the case of Rapanui, we can see three different kinds of ownership, okay? The entire island is an, is an indigenous territory, okay? So land cannot be sell to non-Rabanui people. But there's national park, which is about 40% of the island, that belongs to the government. Even if it's indigenous territory, it belongs uh, to the government. Then we have a um, government land that that's not part of the of the of the national park. It's indigenous territory also, but it doesn't belong to the Rapanui people. And then we have private land that is owned by Rapanui people. So the fight that the Rapanui people were having since I don't know, since we exist or since the relationship with the country exists, is to administrate and own the entire island. 
Uh, recently, in 2016, the administration of the national park was given to the Rapanui community. And that was difficult because administrated such a big park uh, with a lot of income, with a lot of people visiting every year, uh, it's difficult. So we had a lot of problems, but I think that we are doing it better now. We are learning how to administrate this this big machine. Uh, yeah. And how to protect uh, the heritage under scientific standards. Because right now, when you work in archaeological sites, it's not only uh, knowing that it's yours, protecting it uh, because it's yours, you have to up, uh, start to apply scientific standards when it comes to conservation, research, and so on. So we are in that process. It's a difficult process. It's been long, and we have many, many, many years ahead but but it's beautiful. It's I think part of rebuilding our own identity again and regain uh, the control of our territory, not not only in terms of ownership but also in terms of decision. Yeah. Oh, that's good. That's a good way to look at it. I mean, and really, Rapa Nui is lucky to have you to. To be have a thought, I mean, of, of young people working <laughs> or people of my age at least working in these issues. Good. Well, good. That's uh, you. I think I'm going to end the interview here. And we've, because we've talked about many things. And I think that the people that are our listeners can learn so much from what you've already said in terms of relationship to land how different countries work, how different Pacific Islands work, and our main common areas in which we can come together and grow and build. And so it's been great talking to you. And thank you so much for sharing your experience and your um, work and your hope for the future. Oh, thank you very much, Mejia. Thank you very much for, for the interview. And thank you very much for the people hearing us. And I would like to call everybody to visit Polynesia. I mean, not only visit, to leave Polynesia. I think that we have so much to learn between us. There are so many lessons. And for me, at least, in working in Rabanui, I think that... Uh, the best ideas I had it visiting other islands because we start we start to connect things to connect people to connect knowledge. So what you're doing here and um, the ideas of this po podcast they're great. We should have a lot more spaces of this kind. Sometimes yeah, I agree. Difficult for us, but especially in, in in the middle of the pandemic. But digitally, it's it's a way to. Yeah, exactly. Sometimes it's a little bit difficult because Wi-Fi in the Pacific is not Wi-Fi no, well, in the same wi level of here, America. Here <laughs> yeah, connect, connectivity here in Rapanui is awful. It's really really bad. 
But yeah, we I, I think that we have the challenge, at least our generation, to create bridges, to reconnect ourselves uh, and see what is happening. Yeah, exactly. I mean, we're all part of one ocean, right? So we shouldn't forget that. Yeah, exactly. Different islands, but one ocean. So exactly. mahalo nui for sharing your story with us here mm -hmm. at Native Stories. If you all want to further connect with us, if you all want to further connect with us, if you all want to further connect with us, please do follow us on Facebook search Native Stories for daily updates on Native Kind Mail or things. Please download our mobile app and listen to us on all streamcast streaming podcast outlets. Just search Native Stories. Make sure to share us with your Ohana, Huapili, friends, lovers, or whoever you like. Native Stories prides ourselves on being your resource of truth-telling and indigenous knowledge. And the more you share, the more people will know and be informed. Sending plenty aloha out to you all out there. Mahalo for tuning in. Hete, would you like to say goodbye to our listeners? Yolanda uh, Korua, thank you very much for listening to us. And please feel free to visit Rapanoi whenever you want. Uh, I'm sure you all have... You already have family here, so we are family. So thank you very much, Mejia, and thank you very much, everybody, hearing this spot. This spot.